you like to turn with me, we're reading from Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience with dead works and to serve the living God. You may be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you this evening, and I'm very grateful for your presence tonight. I'm very grateful for this beautiful th- singing. Thank you, Stan, for that, and thank you for, Gail, for reading our scriptures and for the fine prayer that was offered for us tonight. We're all very grateful for the worship that we've been led in and for the fine time that we as a family of God can come together and, and worship together. You and I studied today about forgiveness. What an important subject that is. And we've looked at Hebrews chapter 9 as the beginning of our study, and I'd like to go to that verse and maybe explain just a little bit more about it as I continue with the thought of divine forgiveness, how important it is and how much we need it. As you look at Hebrews chapter 9, the passage that was read tonight, he's talking about how important the priesthood of Christ is. And it secures or brings about our forgiveness, makes forgiveness possible. He is the result, a high priest of good things that have come, that have come, then through greater and more perfect tent. What he's talking about there, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. It's not like the material system that was found under the old law, but this new system, by means of a better covenant, by means of a better high priest, has brought about forgiveness of sin through his own blood. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He did this one time because it was effective. Old Testament sacrifices had to be offered over and over again. But the effectiveness of the blood of Christ brought forgiveness of sin, which he had to do only one time. The blood of goats and of calves would bring about ceremonial type of sanctification but not real forgiveness of sin because the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. And then, of course, he tells us about this in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, we've been cleansed from dead works, and thus we serve the living God. Dead works like guilt of sin, like works of merit, like works of traditions, 
all those things which cannot save. But now the blood of Christ has saved us because of our obedience to it. And so we see that he's paid the debt, the debt that I could not pay. I understand something about the overwhelming debt that I owe when I read Matthew chapter 18. And you and I remember this particular passage of study from this morning. How that this individual had such an overwhelming amount to pay back and just couldn't do it. There's no way he could do it. But yet the king in the parable that Jesus was giving said the debt's been canceled out. And the debt's free and clear. And no doubt he must have felt a great deal of relief and joy over that. But he went around and would not cancel the debt of one who owed him a small paltry type of debt compared to the debt that he owed the king. And thus Jesus was teaching an important lesson about our need to be able to forgive others. It sprang on the question of Peter, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus says 70 times seven. He says just always have an attitude of forgiveness about the matter. But we took that particular parable and launched into a discussion of forgiveness and how important it is and how much we need it and how much God has done in making forgiveness possible for us. And it is a good place for us to begin as we contemplate the enormity of the sin in our lives. And we looked at a number of principles that we learned from the pages of the Bible. That's always the place to go. When you want to answer a Bible question, go to the Bible. Go to the right place to get the right answer. Rather than my thoughts or your thoughts or this opinion or that opinion, as good as those opinions might be in our own mind, it never takes the place of the truth of the Scripture or the Word of God. And that's what we went and did today. We looked at these Bible passages, how that one of the basic fundamental elements of forgiveness has the idea with it the removal of the anger and the wrath of God. And there's a lot in the pages of the Bible about the wrath of God, but forgiveness removes that. And we learned about how permanent the removal can be and how it's based on the steadfast love of God. We learned that God does not remember those sins anymore, that God redeems us. It's like rubbing them out of an old manuscript. He's rubbed that out and he's corrected it and that's the way it illustrates our life and our sin before God. When we have been forgiven, that old sin's been rubbed away, rubbed out. God doesn't see it anymore and the corrected item has been given. And these Old Testament pictures help me understand what real forgiveness is about. But there are others that I'd like to share with you tonight and then I'll be very brief in this matter as I want to talk about something exciting to me, and that's forgiveness in the New Testament. But I wanted to say a little bit about Hosea and Gomer as a picture of forgiveness. And it has to be a very tender and a very touching element in the pages of the Old Bible. You and I studied the Old Testament prophets in a Sunday night seminar, the Minor Prophets. Hosea was one of those that we touched on. He spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea was told by God that he was to marry a woman by the name of Gomer. And some have wondered about this particular element in the story. And as we talked about it then, it has to do with the fact that God knew what Gomer would do. And he used this as an object lesson to teach the children of Israel about forgiveness. And I bring it up tonight. Gomer turned out to be a prostitute. Now, Hosea 
had three children by Gomer, two two sons and a daughter. And the first son was named Jezreel, which was to symbolize the things that were going to happen with regard to the children of Israel. God was going to avenge the wrongs that were committed there to the house of Ahab. And then they had another child, and her name was Loruhumah in the Hebrew language, which means no pity. God was not going to have pity on people who would not repent. And then the third, which was another son, was named Loami in the Hebrew language. And Loami means, in English, not my people. God is going to cast his people off. And so because of their wickedness and because of their sin. Now, he illustrated all of this through the life of this prophet Hosea. Hosea prophesied to the north. And I, I love to talk about the lives of these ancient prophets because they were truly God's servants. Uh, the children of Israel were really going down and spiraling downward. And it wasn't but about another 40 years, and they would be overtaken by the Assyrians in 721, 722 B.C. But Hosea is trying to get the children of Israel to realize the sin in their life and to repent, and his life and his married life is an illustration of his sermon. God's trying to teach them in a very vivid way, a very graphic way. And now, because Hosea's wife, Gomer, has left him, And now he goes back and is instructed by chapter 3 to go buy her back. Go buy her back as a slave. You know what the price of a slave was. He goes to the slave market. She's degenerated down so low that now no one will have anything to do with her. And yet God tells Gomer, go buy, Hosea, go buy and buy her back. And he does, and he brings her back. Because the relationship was more important than the sin. And he's forgiven her for what she has done. And so it is with God and his people. The relationship of forgiveness is more important. To be with God is more important than the sin. And God is willing to forgive the sin. And it's a wonderful study in the pages of the Old Testament. Hosea and Gomer. And I I like to read about it. I like to study about it. Because it helps me understand what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the matter of forgiveness. Now here's a great Old Testament passage that I'd like to recite for you and it's found in the book of Micah. Micah is trying to correct the sins of the people. And I'll turn to Micah chapter 7. Micah is prophesying to the Old Testament people in the south, the people of Judah. And let me read this verse for you and you'll see how it fits into our discussion. Micah chapter 7 and 18, the Bible says, who is a God like you? That's a rhetorical question. Who is a God like you? This book really ends on a high note. It ends with a lot of hope. It ends with a lot of forgiveness. The answer to that question is there's no God like God. All these other gods are false gods. There's no God like the one true God of heaven and earth. Who is a God like you? Micah 7 and 18. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. You know what iniquity means. It's wickedness. God forgives your wickedness. He will pass over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. There's that fundamental element of forgiveness once again. The assuaging of the anger of God. Because he delights in steadfast love. There it is again. This passage is talking about motivated by love. God desires the relationship with his people. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Now there's a new image we haven't seen before. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea to try to illustrate just how far God will separate us from our sin when we really receive forgiveness. You will show faithfulness to Jacob. And I think the word confidence there is a good synonym for show. And steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Here he is really praising God. And the children of Israel can look for a bright future if they will turn to God and repent. Why? Because there's the grace of God available to them. Not that they deserve it, but they desperately need it. Well, this helps me understand what forgiveness is really all about. It helps me understand that I'm in desperate need of forgiveness and that I can have this forgiveness. God's willing to offer it if I will turn out of obedient faith to him. But I'd like to turn to another Old Testament passage in Nehemiah chapter 9. And I really think that we would not be doing a thorough or complete job if I didn't include this passage in Nehemiah. Now, here's a historical book that talks about the return of the children of Israel. The cities of Jerusalem is in waste. It's being destroyed. And you have a marvelous sermon in Nehemiah 9. And this would have been a good sermon for us to study during our Sunday night seminars on great preaching, but we limited our, our study of New Testament sermons in that seminar, and I didn't get to these Old Testament sermons. But here's a great one. I'd like to outline it for you and look at the highlight of the great sermon which Nehemiah gives to the people of Israel. And I need to correct myself on that. It is probably Ezra giving the sermon. It's being recorded in the book of Nehemiah. And in your translation, some of you have an older translation, may see that reflected in verse 6. But let me notice, first of all, how that um, we have a discussion of the review of the children of Israel and their history. You are the Lord, verse 6, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, and seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worships you. Well, where does he start in his sermon? Ezra, as the people of Israel are assembled together, now at the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the city, admonishes them, remember, God is the creator. Look what God has done. He's created us, and he's created our world. Then he works his way on down through this particular sermon, and he talks about their deliverance from Egypt in about verse 9 through about verse 12. He talked about the call of Abraham up there in about verse 8 and verse 7. And then by the time you get to about verse 13, there's a very important pivotal point in the part of Israel's history, the giving of the old law in verse 13 and 14. But um, he, he comes to about the matter of their wilderness wanderings in about verse 15. And that's where I'd like to pick up about verse 16 and emphasize the point that he emphasizes in this matter of forgiveness. It's a powerful point that he's making. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. Now, to act presumptuously means to act very arrogantly. But they and our fathers, the Jewish uh, ancestors, our ancestors, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey their command- your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. In other words, when God sent Moses down to Pharaoh, Pharaoh had a stiff neck and acted arrogantly toward God and the children of Israel. 
But the children of Israel acted arrogantly toward God when it came to the matter of their obedience to him and his will. And Ezra saying, our forefathers acted presumptuously. They were guilty of sin. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. And that's our point tonight. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when, even though they committed such sin. And notice the terrible sin that they are, uh, he is rehearsing in their memory. In verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Even when they had committed such atrocities as sins like this, of the nerve of these people to forget all of the wonders of God and then turn around and make a golden calf at the foot of Sinai itself and say, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of slavery. Even when they committed such a sin like that, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. And he goes on in this particular matter, and I love to study this sermon that Ezra is giving before the children of Israel at the return. But our point has been sufficiently made, and that is God still loved them. Even though they were captives in captivity for 70 years, God was ready to bring them back and wanted them to repent. It's not that God would uh, just forget his people in captivity, but he wanted that relationship with them. Now, when you and I are wronged, you know, somebody does us wrong, somebody talks to us the wrong way, somebody treats us in the wrong way. Well, naturally, what's our response? We naturally respond with anger, or we respond with bitterness, or we try to retaliate in some way. That's an unnatural way of handling things, and we need to exercise self-control that we don't do it that way. But my point is, God never acts that way. Now, we act that way. When we have been wrong, we act in the wrong way. We respond in the wrong way. When God was wronged, he didn't respond that way. He responded with love and kindness. Now, he disciplined them, and he did so severely. Seventy years of captivity, and he brings them out of Babylonian captivity, and it was a terrible captivity for them to go through, one that they would never forget, even future generations. But he never acted with bitterness and unkindness. He acted with love and mercy just as the passage teaches, just as Ezra is teaching us, God is loving and kind and doesn't want to be filled with anger because of our rebelliousness, but God is begging us to come back to him. Now, as I said earlier, this is where it gets exciting to me. When I start reading about forgiveness in the pages of the New Testament, I love these Old Testament passages. <clears throat> they give us so much understanding and background to New Testament teaching and, and uh, New Testament doctrine. But it's when I get into the New Testament I really understand more about the mind of God and the nature of forgiveness. And I'm so grateful that I've got the Bible. If I didn't have the Bible, I wouldn't understand this. If I didn't have the clear teaching of the Word of God, I wouldn't understand what, what is going on in the mind of God. And that's the wonderful thing about this. With the New Testament, I can read the great thoughts of God. I can understand them. And look at what was going on in God's mind. And so I picked out a couple of passages for us tonight, which to me are very exciting. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, it's very clear that God took the initiative. And Paul is talking about this matter of forgiveness. And he brings up a great word that you and I have studied as we were going through 2 Corinthians. And that great word is reconciliation. And he uses this phrase here, the ministry of reconciliation. And it's a wonderful word. And it goes back to the idea of two people getting back together again. They've been separated and they've been estranged. There's been falling out. But now they're getting back together again. And that's what he's saying here. Now I'll begin the reading at about verse 16. Now, he talks about problems that the church at Corinth had and difficulties along these particular matters. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this idea of creation, only God can create. God created the physical realm. God created the spiritual realm. God said on the first day, let there be light, and there was light. But God also created the spiritual realm. I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. Mankind couldn't do that. Only God could create this spiritual realm, this new creation, this spiritual process by which we are saved from sin and receive the hope of obtaining eternal life. He says, now we're a new creation. How is it that we're a new creation? Well, we're new in that we've got a new relationship with Jesus Christ. We've never been uh, forgiven of our sins, but now we have. Now we've been obedient to the gospel of Christ, and we've got this new relationship with Christ before obedience to the gospel. Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 6, Galatians chapter 3, 26, 27, 28, all these great passages talking about how we receive this new relationship. We are now in Christ. And the new relationship, where a new creation has been brought about because of what God has done. Well, we have this new way of living. Now we got a new way to look at life. we got different aspects here that are all new. We don't look at life the same way anymore. Now we look at life through the Christian perspective. And as God has told us in the pages of the Bible, we're a new creation. New relationship, new way to live, new outlook on life. Got a new hope for the future. I'm telling you, it's exciting when I read it from the pages of the New Testament. Now, these great Old Testament prophets did the best they could by inspiration. But when we come down to the nuts and bolts of what the New Testament tells us, we learn more about forgiveness and what God has in mind for us, what went on in the mind of God. He is a new creation The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that's that word I mentioned to you about. The ministry of reconciliation is the message of Christ, the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the ministry of reconciliation, how men and women are reconciled back to God. How men and women receive forgiveness. And much of what he's saying in this passage, God took the initiative in doing this. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. Man can't save himself. As much as he would try, he can't do it. It all is within the hands of God. God took the initiative to bring about this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's given us the gospel, the gospel message. And now we know what reconciliation means, getting back together with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that specifically, how that it tells us to repent of our sins and confess our faith, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. But I've got another passage I'd like to study with you about. It comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you haven't read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or if it's been a long time since you've read that, then now's the time for you to consider that very carefully. And I want to spend just a moment emphasizing verse, uh, starting with verse 9. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Evidently, he was saying out there in the pew, some of you were guilty of these particular matters, but not anymore. Such were some of you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, this is 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now listen carefully, brother. Do not be deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you. And don't deceive yourself. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there it is. And such were some of you. Some of them were like that. Some sitting out in the pew were guilty of those particular sins. But what did they receive? Forgiveness. They had received forgiveness. And he tells us about that in verse 11. But you were washed. When he says you were washed, he's just telling us about Romans 6 and Galatians chapter 3. Passages I've emphasized already. They were washed. The sins were washed away. You'll remember Ananias told uh, Saul, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. That's how the sins are washed away, by being baptized. And one receives the benefit of the blood of Jesus Christ. Arise and be baptized, Saul. Wash away. Why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He says, how is it that you, some such were some of you? Well, you've been washed. You've received forgiveness of sin. You were sanctified. They were sanctified when they were washed. They were sanctified when they were baptized into Christ. Not before, and not a moment uh, before they were baptized, but when they were baptized, when they were washed, they were sanctified. You were what? You were justified. You were made right. Now, you weren't right, but you were made right. And God looked upon you as being right. What are we talking about here? We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about some of the rankest, vilest sins that someone can commit. And they can be forgiven. And so you've heard me say a number of times, and I'll just keep on saying it. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. So long as you repent of it, and you're baptized for the remission of sins, you can receive forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. Now, we're talking about some pretty bad sins here, and I know as Christian people, and we've studied through the years the Bible, and we've grown to live more like Christ, and we've gotten to be more like 
what God wants us to be, and we look at these vile sins. Oh, how vile these sins are, but sin is a terrible thing in the sight of God, and they are vile sins. And we can't deceive ourselves into thinking that folks who practice that will inherit the kingdom of God. God said they will not. But the thing that we rejoice in is the fact that we all can receive forgiveness of these sins. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Now notice his next phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's by the authority of Christ. You've been washed and you've been sanctified and you've been justified by the authority of Jesus Christ. Not by the authority of the state of Texas or the authority of the preacher or the elder. It's the authority of Christ. That's the authority that really matters. And by the Spirit of our God. And I take that to mean the instruction that God gives us. Without the instruction of the Spirit and the revelation the Spirit gave, we wouldn't know anything about being washed and sanctified and justified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice how that all three members of the Godhead are referenced in this particular passage in the salvation process and the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't matter who's sitting out there in the pew. You can avert the penalty by obeying the gospel of Christ and receiving forgiveness. This is the greatest message anyone can learn. But I'd like to spend just a brief moment talking about 1 Peter chapter 1. And in this particular instance, I'd like for us to see the important point that Peter's making, though several great points are made in this particular passage, how that we have been redeemed from our sins and that it is a gift of God. We've been ransomed, knowing that you were ransomed, verse 18, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, verse 19. Now, all of this comes in the context of having the hope of eternal life. And he tells us there in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is but the reference of the second coming of Christ. And you look forward to that as a child of God. And if, verse 17, you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Now, to judge impartially simply means he does not judge based on external circumstances. He doesn't judge based on situations. He doesn't judge on looks or likes or dislikes. He judges on deeds. The deeds are our obedient faith. He's saying there, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. The deeds there are acts of obedient faith. Have we, through obedient faith, obeyed the gospel? Are we, through obedient faith, continuing to live the gospel? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The short time that we've got left on the face of this earth, be mindful of the fact that you were ransomed. Now, you were bought out of this slavery. Once a slave to sin, but now you've been bought out of that slavery. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why is the blood of Christ so precious? It's the blood of the Son of God that is able to pay the price for sin, bringing about forgiveness for us. It can do the job. The blood of bulls and goats could not do that job, but this job can be done only by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and thus it was given. And our hearts are filled with gratitude, and our hearts are filled with thanksgiving, and we see the need to change because we want this forgiveness, and we can have it. Ah, but there's another passage you and I need to study before we bring our discussion to a close. It's a beautiful little verse written by the Apostle Paul to a young preacher by the name of Titus. And there in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 14, you have a verse of Scripture which talks about salvation and that wonderful word, grace. For the grace of God, Titus 2, 11 has appeared. Now when he says the grace of God has appeared, what he means by that is Christ has come. And he's saying Christ is that grace. Grace came in the form of God's Son. And God's Son came by a means of grace whereby we can receive forgiveness. He says in the passage, for the grace of God has appeared bringing Salvation for all people. Notice it wasn't salvation just for the elect. It is not a limited atonement. It is salvation for all, potentially, all who will respond faithfully to the gospel of Christ. Sadly to say, not everyone will respond to the gospel of Christ. Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14 talks about a very broad way. People who will reject the gospel message. It's an easy way that leads to destruction. But all those who will, through obedient faith, respond to the gospel message, there's sufficient grace, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, the training us in verse 12 has reference to the fact that the word of God has come, and it teaches us, and it instructs us. The only way we know anything about this is by our study of the word of God. Training us, the word of God teaches us, Training us to renounce, what? Ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. Christianity is a system of hope. Forgiveness brings hope. And so they're closely attached together as we see them in verses 12 and 13. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. We have hope of obtaining eternal life now because I've received forgiveness of sin because of what Christ has done, because of the grace of God. My future looks bright, and your future looks bright because you and I have obeyed the gospel by repenting of sin, confessing faith, and by being baptized into Christ continuing to worship God as the New Testament teaches, continuing to live the faithful, dedicated Christian life as the New Testament teaches, patterning our lives after Jesus Christ, the perfect example. There's hope for us.
even though this world seems to be falling apart, the Christian belongs to Christ because he received a wonderful gift, forgiveness, as it's taught to us in the pages of the Bible. Now, if you're here tonight, if you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, what's holding you back? You need this forgiveness. You're outside of Christ because you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ. You don't have this forgiveness. You need to come to him tonight and obey the pure gospel as we've learned about it from the pages of the word. Not a modernized kind of gospel. Not a better felt than told feeling. But being complicit with the commands of Christ, we come in contact with Christ and in union with our Savior by being baptized with him out of obedient faith. If you're here tonight and you have not obeyed the gospel, I urge you to do it. If you're here tonight and you are unfaithful in your work for Christ in your life as a Christian, what are you going to do about that? Isn't it time for you to receive forgiveness? which you can have by repenting and through prayer, God will restore you. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?